Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it is Jobs Friday. There's something for everybody in there. The unemployment rate, uh, that's what Larry Kudlow led with, falls to 3.5% uh, despite uh, missing uh, the hiring in September. To get dig a little deeper into the jobs data, we welcome Tom Gibble. Tom's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network based in Chicago. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Again, there's probably something in this report for uh, Fed doves and hawks alike. What were your key takeaways? I would have to agree with what Larry Kudlow led with, and that is the drop down to 3.5%. And while economists were predicting 145,000, 136,000 is nothing to sneeze at. The economy is still chugging, and you know everybody wants to be the the forecaster for when they're right of when the uh, a quote unquote slowdown or recession hits. But things are really good right now. So try to square the idea of this lowest unemployment rate in 50 years with this idea of wage growth that is slowing down. The two ideas seem to uh, kind of contradict each other. I totally disagree. I think that that makes sense because we're in a global economy right now. And if we were just doing jobs in America for American companies, then having low unemployment and no wage growth wouldn't make sense. But we're not competing against uh, your neighbor for a job. If companies can make more money for their shareholders, uh, increasing shareholder value is what the job of a company is to do, what a CEO is to do, then finding somebody who's talented to do it in a global economy in India or Pakistan or China or wherever makes a lot of sense. Okay, so And that's this, what we're competing against. All right. So if that's the case, then even if we continue to see job gains, is that that you're expecting uh, wage growth to continue to slow down as we did uh, in the past reading? Well, it's, it, the cycle we're looking at is probably three, five, seven years off for real wage gain. And that is, as these underdeveloped countries uh, catch up with the rest of the world, then their wages will, will grow. And then American companies will have to look and say, does it make as much sense to offshore jobs uh, when I can get it done here with more control and more oversight? You know, and we'll see what happens in the geopolitical climate and, and in Washington, D.C. next year and where regulations are. We're a very loose regulation uh, government and economy right now for business. So it makes sense to do what's in the, what's in the immediate best interest of shareholder versus long-time value. Tom, so the manufacturing economy uh, is slowing. We had a, a negative uh, manufacturing PMI, you know, I guess 47.8, that's second yep. uh, month in a row. So putting even more pressure on the consumer, and the consumer's been really strong in this economy, really supporting uh, this economy. And a large part of that uh, support for the consumer comes from the fact that the consumer has a job and wages are going up, maybe not as much as people would like. Is there a level of job creation um, that would get you worried about the overall jobs picture? Uh, that's an interesting dynamic. You know, we're at 3.5% unemployment, and historically the number of full employment is about 2.5%. While that, you know, doesn't necessarily make direct sense, but there is a certain percent of the population that can't hold a job. And so when you're looking at the development and the growth of the economy, I've never really understood the separation of consumer versus uh, business growth. They are, I agree with what you said, they are 100% aligned, and that when people have full jobs uh, and 
and there's low unemployment, then of course the consumer is going to be a strong purchaser of goods and services. What, what we have to be careful of is paying too much for wages for a job that doesn't deserve, right? If, if anybody can do it, it shouldn't pay a lot of money. And that's the dynamic we're in now is there aren't a lot of people that do the jobs. And this is why there's this CEO outrage of are they making too much money? Well, as the business world gets so, such, so much more complex and it's global, that the jobs of CEOs are going to be paid more. And the fact is, is that the baseline worker, that job is becoming more simplistic. And those jobs are not going to grow at the same rate. And no one wants to say that in Washington, D.C., but that's the truth. And that's where the crux is coming of an economic disparity between the average worker and the executives. So do you see a time in the United States or a a sector uh, where there could be more investment that could produce jobs that pay upper level uh, kinds of salaries, albeit not the top and CEO, but something that would cause a more meaningful shift upward in average wages? Absolutely. And I think where that is going to be is in the area of of companies doing their own training and development, a la General Electric in the mid-80s with their campus and and learning, is when companies realize that they're going to have to start developing their own talent, whether it's in blue-collar, unskilled jobs or skilled jobs or white-collar, that whether it's college graduates um, or under underemployed population that they've got to do their own training. And that's the next phase. And whether it's done digitally um, uh, through computer learning and, and what have you, or it's done in face-to-face traditional teaching, companies have to reinvest in their training and development. We haven't seen that to the, the level that it needs to be. My guess is over the next two to four years, that'll be what separates high-growth companies from low-growth companies or the ones that, that invest in training and development. Tom Gimbel, thank you so much. Uh, for your thoughts after this jobs report uh, that we got earlier today. Tom Gimbel is founder and chief executive officer of LaSalle Network. Well, I think it's safe to say that there was something for everybody in this morning's job report. We had uh, a 50-year low in the unemployment rate to 3.5%, as as has been reported. But job growth is slowing. Wages are a little bit uh, lower than people would expect. So what are investors to do? Our next guest hopefully can help us out there. Doug Cohen, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Athena Capital Advisors. Athena has about $5.8 billion uh, assets under management. Uh, he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for joining us. What was your take on the jobs data today, and has it changed kind of how you guys are looking at the market? Well, first of all, thanks, Paul, for having me back. Um, my general view on the jobs reports are that Every single Friday of the first Friday of every month, we all make the media, Wall Street folks, we make way too much of these jobs reports. They're, I think we don't make enough. Of them, <laughs> they are volatile. I'll the numbers the get revision. But, but, but I'm going to say something nice now. The nice part is this time it re- you're right to lead with that question because this one actually was really important. Just given all the, the negative, the slew of negative data that we've had over the last several weeks and really over the last several months, this one was important. And the reason it was important is that if, this, if we are truly on the cusp of a recession, we have not seen it yet with the consumer. We've started to see it in the manufacturing sector, but that would be the natural progression. If business confidence really starts to wane, 
the labor picture deteriorates, that's when the consumer becomes most vulnerable. So today was essentially a sigh of relief. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. And that was good enough. Obviously, it's good enough for the market so far. In terms of, of longer-term positioning, I don't know that it necessarily matters. I think there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty out there. And things like trade and even into the election next year, those are going to be paramount. I, I honestly, I am scratching my head this morning about just the reaction to the numbers. They came in worse than expected. Wage growth came in worse than expected. The trend is down. Right now, we're looking at a market that does appear to be uh, full employment, at least when it comes to the 3.5% unemployment rate, right. but not great numbers. And it shows a trend of deceleration. So why is this a sigh of relief? Because it really wasn't that bad, and I think the bar had already been lowered. The consensus, so there's a formal consensus, which this number was just slightly below, but the oft-talked-about whisper number was probably something like 120,000. But to your point, when you really dig through the numbers, the wage growth was not great. One of the better things we've had going us from the economy is that we've had wage growth over 3%. We dipped slightly below that, but I still come back to my earlier statement. Let's not over-obsess over a tenth of a point here or there. You're right, we are decelerating, but at least this report showed that we're not slipping into free fall. It really was relatively stable. So as you guys think about the next 12 to 18 months with your uh, uh, portfolios, do you feel like the Fed has enough ammunition to support this market or is it just law of diminishing returns on kind of what the Fed can really do? Uh, absolutely the latter. And we're already so low. And you think about a typical recession. No recession's typical, but having said that, you know, a garden variety recession, you typically want five or six hundred basis points of cushion. We don't have that. And the ultimate kind of irony in some way is that at this point, even if we do cut rates, I think it has the potential unintended consequence of making it easier for this trade war to linger. And that is at the margin the thing that is holding the global economy back. And, um, you know, as you say, if you look out over the next 12 months or so, if there's one thing that would really be a game changer from a macro perspective, it would be getting this trade war behind us. So what are you buying? <laughs> well, I can tell you most of our clients um, are, you know, we spend more time talking about the differences in, in yields on cash versus enhanced cash. Really boring stuff, but I think that's indicative of the mindset. It's not, I mean, Tom Keen, triple levered yep. cash, you know, he's, yeah. he's 100%, <laughs> right? He has been yep. for what, 10 years? Yes. Go on. Um. No, but, you know, but look, having said that, and I think most of our clients understand that, you know, all things pass and that if you truly do have a long-term perspective, U.S. equity markets in particular are not egregiously priced, um, and it's not terribly difficult to see uh, a scenario where we do get a resolution in the trade war, where we start to get back to a point where, hey, it's kind of Goldilocks again. We get GDP growth that's around 2%, inflation that's around 2%, interest rates that broadly are around 2%. That's nirvana for equity markets. Those that You can get higher multiples than where we are today if you think that that kind of environment can persist. How worried are you about you know, trade? We haven't really talked about it too much, but we're going to have uh, negotiations again, supposedly uh, next week. So it's been something that's been a little bit on the back burner, but it, you highlighted it as certainly an issue for the global manufacturing and the global uh, confidence of, of, of corporate uh, corporates around the world. What is your view? So my view is, that, look, the two things that are probably most important right now are interest rates and trade. And 
Interest rates, as we just talked about, we I think we are getting to that point of diminishing returns. There's only so much lower that we can really go before we start getting into the extraordinary things that Europe and Japan have been doing that, frankly, haven't worked all that well. So I come back to trade as kind of the marginal driver. I think it's extremely important uh, that we do get some progress next week. It doesn't have to be amazing. No one expects a final resolution. But we're starting to get to a point where if nothing happens by early next year, then the election starts to become meaningfully close. And I think the Chinese in particular are going to say, you know what, maybe we should just sit this out. So to me, if there's going to be a resolution, even if it's a light resolution, a sort of a, a token kind of kick the can type of uh, interim arrangement, it probably needs to happen in the next four or five months. Okay. Well, you said buy stocks, basically. Uh, what do you sell? <laughs> uh, if you have a long-term perspective, you sell, you sell fixed income. Um, because there's pro- you know, in a world where bubbles are only easily identified after they burst, fixed income is the bubble. We, I think at some level, we all know that. The extraordinary low negative interest rates that we have throughout the world, this is not normal. And folks who try and rationalize it, I think, are making a mistake. So again, over a multi-year time frame, I think that's what you do. How does it unravel? Well, in a lot of different ways. You, you, have, you, have, yeah. you have you have like 60 seconds. How does, how does the bond bubble unravel? Go. So, <laughs> um, I think if I had, so, so Ray Dalio's written a lot about this uh, at Bridgewater, and I think he's right. If you have to think about a potential paradigm change for what could take place over the next decade, if we continue down this path where globally interest rates continue to cascade lower, at some point, Debts are going to start to matter. There's going to be a race to the bottom on currencies, and that potentially could be very, very destructive. And if you do start to see that, that in and of itself would create an environment where um, debt does actually begin to matter again, and interest rates start to move meaningfully higher. So it sort of gets gets you know rates get lower before they break higher. That's the paradigm change. And when you want to, when we have more than 60 seconds, now probably six seconds, I'd be happy to come back and talk about it more. Doug Cohen, we'll have to do that. Uh, okay. Doug Cohen, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Athena Capital Advisors with nearly $6 billion uh, in assets. Thank you so much. Right now, we are so lucky to have with us our Bloomberg Opinion colleague, Max Neeson, as we check in uh, with our opinion columnists all the time at this time. Max Neeson joins us here covering the biotech, pharma, and healthcare uh, sectors for us. And I want to look toward the 2020 election, and President Trump certainly is doing just that. And recently, he started talking in a less discussed than, say, uh, Ukraine, a less discussed uh, proposal for healthcare. Can you just give us a sense of what that was? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a speech he gave in Florida yesterday. Uh, he unveiled a new executive order, one of many that he's done uh, on healthcare over the past few years. This one focuses on on Medicare, specifically on boosting Medicare Advantage, which is sort of the privately administered um, you know option for seniors that that don't want traditional Medicare. Um, and he used it, you know, it was, it was partially a speech rolling this out, which is, you know, as far as healthcare policy goes, not not the biggest thing we've ever seen. Uh, but also used it sort of to preview his campaign rhetoric, which is anything that Democrats want to do is a, a socialist destruction of Medicare 
and um, will you know ruin the American healthcare system forever. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, but as for the policy itself, uh, it basically seeks to sort of advance, um, you know, give give a boost to these plans relative to, to traditional Medicare. Uh, it's been a kind of a long time Republican goal. The idea is that you know competition on that side will bring down costs, boost efficiency. Mixed results on it so far, but but he's trying to give those plans a bigger nudge. So just give us a sense if, or summary, if you could, for what is Medicare for all? Because that's something that we're going to hear a lot about as we head into the election season. Sure. Um, most often, especially in the context of the presidential election, it's uh, referring to Bernie Sanders' plan, which would basically, over the course of four years, uh, transition all Americans onto a, a new uh, publicly tax-financed government uh, run program and that that uh, that program and I think this is an important point relative to this Medicare discussion would be more generous uh, by a substantial margin than even what Medicare is right now uh, no premiums no out-of-pocket costs um, you know no co-pays no co-insurance when you actually go to the doctor fill a prescription uh, and instead of these sort of narrowly prescribed networks that you have when you have insurance now access to theoretically any doctor that you want comes with trade-offs, you know, higher taxes, um, you know, if we look at other countries that have single-payer systems, potentially uh, longer wait times, other cost control measures. So, you know, give and take, it's impossible because we've never seen it in the United States, know exactly what it would look like, but it would be a generous step up for most people in terms of their health care. Max, uh, one thing that you noted in your recent column is that health care has been a particularly thorny topic uh, for President Trump. And I wonder how much that stems from uh, what the Republican view is in terms of what they would like to see. And I'm t- talking about Republicans in Congress. I'm talking about voting Democratic resident, uh, voting uh, Republican uh, residents of the United States. Yeah, so the the sort of the way I'd characterize Republican view towards healthcare policy is that it's always oppositional uh, to whatever Democrats are trying to do. We had it with uh, the Affordable Care Act. We have it now with with plans to expand Medicare. There's not really a vision for, or at least not a popular vision for an alternative. Uh, we saw this a couple years back when they tried to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but it became pretty obvious that their plan would erode, would have become very popular protections for people with pre-existing conditions, other consumer protections, and uh, roll back the Medicaid expansion, which is, has been kind of shown to be highly effective at improving healthcare outcomes for poor people and has just gotten a lot of people insurance that never had it before. They, they don't really seem to have a fully fleshed out alternative. And I don't think we saw one from the president yesterday. It sort of, if anything, it showed sort of a, a diminished ambition, uh, you know, this focus on Medicare as opposed to uh, a broader alternative. And uh, at the same time, even as they, you know, he pledged yesterday, Republicans are going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. He's still supporting a lawsuit that would uh, get rid of the ACA and, and has not, uh, at this point at least, revealed uh, an alternative plan that, that could kind of live up to that promise that he's making. So when you talk to some big healthcare companies, you know, as part of your coverage, what are they looking for to come out of Washington? Is the status quo kind of okay, or do they want a radical change? What's kind of the, the status quo is, is fabulous? For yes, them. yeah, <laughs> they're they're um they're working overtime to preserve it, um, and I think you're seeing right now, and and this is sort of the 
the big issue with proposing any sort of major health care reform. Right now, one of the things that's kind of trying to make its way through Congress is a, a restriction on what's called surprise billing. So basically, when you go to a, a, a provider that's out of your network, and that, that happens all the time when it's things like emergency medicine, ambulances, things that you don't really get to pick. And uh, those groups leverage that to charge really, really high prices, whether or not they're in an insurance network. This should be the lowest hanging fruit right. in healthcare. It's, you know, it's an obvious market failure. It's obviously abusive. Benefits no one yep. except for the, you know, the private equity firms that have right. uh, invested in these areas. But um, you know, it, it just shows how hard it's going to be to have reform and how much people like the status quo. Max Neeson, thanks so much for joining us. Max Neeson is Bloomberg Opinion columnist for covering all things biotech for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read Max's work and other great work from our Bloomberg Opinion columnists at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal typing in O-P-I-N go. Joining us now is Becky Frankowitz, president of Manpower Group North America, uh, joining us from Chicago. And Becky, earlier we were speaking with Tom Gimbel uh, from LaSalle, and he had a very positive view of this jobs report. Do you agree that it really is the very low unemployment rate that we should be kind of highlighting here? Yeah, so I would say the talent squeeze definitely showed up in today's jobs report. You know, unemployment at 3.5% continues to defy the economic definition of full employment. Um, so I, I would celebrate the addition, the continued addition to jobs. You know, it is a very, very tight labor market, and the future of our company or our country's economic growth depends on us having, you know, skilled talent to put into these jobs. So, Becky, the wage increase came in a little bit below expectations, uh, 2.9%. Um, how do you view the wage growth? Is it healthy, or would you be expecting uh, higher wage growth given that we're at or near full employment? Yeah, so, of course, I would expect wage growth to – I was surprised that it went down. You know, we were coming off the back of 13 months at 3% or higher wage growth, so I was surprised and a bit disappointed in the decline. What I would tell you we're seeing, you know, in the conversations we're having with clients across the country is that they're continuing to turn to non-wage benefits. You know, wages are, are growing a bit, but they're turning to non-wage. The fastest-growing non-wage benefit in the country today is remote working, um, so we're seeing flexibility come front and center. Um, to try to attract talent. So going forward, where do you think the momentum is? Is it to the slowing down side or is it to the increasingly tight and we're going to get higher wages side? Yes, I think we're going to see both. You know, we're living in unprecedented times and we haven't seen this kind of unemployment in in 50 years. Um, So we did see some softening in manufacturing. Um, Retail, while softened, transportation warehouse, you know, was up 16,000 jobs. Um, We've seen significant growth there as the the growth shifts to e-commerce. And that's interesting because the season, the retail hiring season uh, for seasonal has started much earlier than we've seen in the past. So, you know, indicating people are truly shifting to e-com. So I think we'll see, you know, further, I mean, 3.5, I hesitate because what does further tightening look like? I can tell you that we feel it. We continue to have high demand, increasing demand, um, but it is becoming harder to fill job to job because we have, you know, we need to bring more people into the workforce. That's, that's the solution. So Becky, Lisa and I, we speak to um, a lot of corporate executives and business owners, and they say that, you know, that one of the biggest challenges is in fact, finding qualified um, employees for their businesses. What's is the sense that the job creation here we're seeing are, are are companies that you talk to are they finding the right types of people that they're looking for? 
Yeah, so we did. We do a survey every year. So this year, when we looked at what we call talent shortage, 48% of American executives said they can't find the talent they need. So that, and, and I anticipate when we repeat the survey, that's going to become even a, a stronger indicator because it is difficult to find skills. At the same time, I would say we're talking to clients around, you know, what is truly required for a position versus desired for a position. And those are the conversations that say, you know, do you, do you truly need a master's degree to do this position? Do you truly need, you know, 10 years experience in engineering? And we're having to engage in that detail of conversation to make sure that our clients are opening their aperture to the talent that, you know, could come into the market. And, you know, 95% of the, client, of the candidates that we're placing now are coming from another job. So IT, there's 1% unemployment in IT. So, you know, if you have an interest in IT, there are jobs out there. The challenge is how do you attract talent, you know, from one place to another? So it raises the question of investing in training programs. And even though that that kind of uh, expenditure has picked up a bit over the years, it still is well below where it was, say, 20, 30 years ago in, in, in the United States. And I'm just wondering whether you think that companies are getting more amenable to the idea of spending on training programs. Yeah, so we've seen more um, commitment to upskill in the last two months than we've seen in the last two years. And so when you say getting more amenable, the, the conversation is accelerating. The time is, you know, now, now it's the time for action. The other challenge that I think American employers are having is the way we've done training in the past is more at a point in time, and the return is, is expected to last over, you know, three to five years. Now that skills are changing at the pace of technology, that return, the investment has to be at a short period of time, just in time, and it's going to have to be more frequent. So we, we are um, engaged in conversations now around the, the way the actual fashion of training has to change in our country, because the, you know, the return is not going to be over three to five years. It's going to be over one year, and then it's going to change again. So Becky, just finally, just are you starting to see people that maybe were sitting on the sidelines starting to come back into the workforce and looking for jobs, given how strong the market is? Yes, I would say that's the single biggest challenge for our country is we need to bring people off the sidelines. You know, BLS this morning said labor force participation remained flat. Um, that That is what we have to do. And part of that is, you know, looking at, when, again, what's desired versus what's required, helping clients as well as candidates understand that you don't have to have all 10 boxes checked on before you apply for the job. The time is now. If you have six of the 10, lean in, lean into your skills and what you bring to the table versus the specific experience that's required and put yourself forward for a job. Becky Frankowitz, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time out to today. Becky is the president of Manpower Group North America. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.